You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. You're listening to Done By Law, brought to you by the Federation of Community Legal Centres. Welcome to Done By Law for tonight, Tuesday, the 4th of August. We're on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am and 3CR Digital, streaming online and podcasted through 3cr.org.au. We are very proud to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands we're broadcasting from. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and continue to recognise that sovereignty was never ceded. I'm Daniel Babsevich and I'm joined by Gemma Lee Dodds and Sue Robertson tonight. How are you doing, Sue and Gemma? G'day, Dan. G'day, Gemma. G'day, Sue and Dan. I'm very well. I'm locked down is what we're doing. Locked down, but well. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. we should say we're coming to you on Sunday, even though this episode's broadcast on Tuesday night, and we've just been met with news of further COVID-19-related lockdowns in Melbourne, where we're all broadcasting from. Mm. Um, We won't be covering that in detail tonight, but somewhat related. Yes, we have two guests tonight, and um, we're covering the topic of Clive Palmer's legal challenge to the um, state borders closing, in particular West Australia's state borders, hard shutdown of their state border. If you're tuning in from Victoria, you'll have shared a number of weeks in COVID lockdown. This is the fourth of six weeks, and uh, cases are increasing. So we're thinking those restrictions will be lifted um, won't be lifted soon. And of course, we're locked down further now. Um, so things have gone a bit awry and our state government's struggling to bring the numbers down. And, you know, WA, as we know, have a hard border. And there are bits and pieces of lockdown of borders from other states as well and restricting movement between states. And you would have seen that Clive Palmer has brought a high court challenge to the West Australian government's decision to actually do that border closure. And we're going to go into that in a bit more detail in a moment. But essentially, he's suing the West Australian government from preventing his own free movement into the state and saying that the constitution doesn't allow them to do that, to um, restrict him in that way and his ability to move money, make money um, easily through business because of this. Firstly, we wanted to talk about what's happening on the ground in the States in the way that this issue has been more readily affecting everyday Australians rather than a big mining conglomerate or Clive Palmer. Many uh, West Australian residents who currently aren't in Western Australia have had to show that they've got exceptional uh, exemplary circumstances to allow them entry back into Western Australia. And one of those people who's been uh, struggling to get that exemption themselves is Amber Khan, who joins us tonight to discuss how this border closure has personally affected her and her family. Thank you for joining us, Amber. Thank you for having me. Um, Yeah, so it's been, obviously, the last few months have been quite disappointing to see how the Australian government has 
continuously let people fall through the cracks and let us just go unnoticed, unheard for so long. And it's not good enough anymore just to say that's how it is. So, so what's been happening personally for you? And can you describe to us what your situation's been? Yeah, so um, I moved to Melbourne on the 25th of October last year to pursue a degree that I couldn't study at home in Perth. Um, and so when I moved here, I was working full-time or I was working full-time hours under a casual contract and I was also studying full-time at the beginning of March. Um, so on March 27th, I lost my job and obviously started looking into my options in terms of government support through Centrelink um, whatever I was eligible for. And I've been denied both uh, job seekers and student payments uh, because of parental income. So the threshold for parental income is $54,677 a year. And every dollar that your parents make over that amount decreases your payments. Wow. Right. So you're not eligible at the moment for any government benefit? No, I've not had a single cent from Service so Australia. Currently, do you have any income? No income at all, no. So I was working for two weeks uh, at the end of June and beginning of July when restaurants and things reopened in Melbourne. But obviously on July 8th, when we went back into stage three, I lost that job as well. So uh, the only that's the only income that I've had since March 27th. Gosh. Wow. Yeah. So your situation sounds pretty dire and you made an application to go back to Western Australia because that's where your family are living and are they able to help you out, take you in and let you move back home? Yeah, well, I mean, my lease is ending here on the 15th of September. So obviously with no income, no government support, I can't sign on to another lease. So I have no other option but to go home. Obviously, my preference would be to stay here and finish my degree. That's what I came here for. Um, but it's just not an option right now. But unfortunately, my first G2G application got deleted, uh, rejected, sorry. And when you say G2G, that's yeah. the, well, the West Australian government is calling their um, application yeah. for entry exemption, basically. Yeah, an exemption. Um, and what grounds, I understand you made that application on compassionate grounds? It was actually, I didn't apply under compassionate grounds because it seemed that you only fit into that category if you were going there to care for someone else or you needed care yourself. So I applied under person otherwise seeking entry to WA. Um, but I've sent in my other application the other night, which is now I've gone for compassionate grounds, hoping that I might be able to get something out of that. But I've submitted 15 supporting documents, like stat decks from both me and my parents, an updated um, income statement because obviously both my parents have suffered loss of income since the beginning of the pandemic as well. And my rejections from Centrelink were based on the last financial year. Mm. Obviously they're not in a position now to help me financially, but because of that rule, there was just nothing they could do. So Yeah, because COVID was around last financial year, not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> terrible, yeah. terrible circumstance. I'm so yeah, sorry. It's, I've just seemed to get unlucky every single time, but there's nothing I can do about it now. I just have to hope that they let me in. So, And so, how long has this process taken, Amber? So when I applied, they told me that it should take no longer than five business days, but I think it ended up being about two weeks that I waited to hear. But I think that was more because they were prioritising travellers with earlier travel dates. 
So obviously I've applied for the 15th of September when my lease ends. Um, Cause obviously I don't want to be paying for accommodation that I'm not living in and paying for hotel quarantine back home. So it's just, yeah, I think it was based on the fact that my applica- the application that I put in wasn't to fly until later. So I'm expecting about the same time this time round, but who knows? Did you, did you get any, any reasons back for the rejection or was it just a, a, a re- you've been rejected? Um, they pretty much just said that I didn't fit under any circumstances that they are giving exceptions for. Um, so basically that my reason wasn't good enough <laughs> to travel. I mean, it seems like um, you, your circumstances um, are, are awful, but it's actually very foreseeable that this is the kind of impact that lots and lots and lots of people will be experiencing. I'm surprised that um, it doesn't seem to fit a box that they've set up. Yeah, and I know that there's countless other Australians in the same position that I'm in, so it's crazy to see how many of us are just being ignored or just told no again and again no one's saying anything so (laughs) and have you had any contact with um the government in western australia about your particular case and other people's cases yeah so some of um the uh workers for my electorate um like state and federal electorates back home in perth have been in touch about because they saw my post on facebook as well Um, and had just given me some more information about how to better apply this time. So include my Western Australian license, which would obviously prove that I'm a resident, Um, my Australian passport, uh, and just any other, and obviously the statutory declarations as well were the two big ones, because they only give you 200 characters or something to explain why you should be allowed home. So that's obviously not enough to cover my circumstances. So I ended up doing a three page statutory declaration. So I'm hoping that's enough for them, but given everything, I'm not so sure. <laughs> so what did you originally have to attach to this application? Um, um, so in my uh, brief explanation, I just said that I'd lost my job, wasn't getting any government support. And as of the 15th of September, I was going to be homeless and needed to travel home to, to obviously have accommodation. Um, and I attached the letter of separation from my employer who I got let, I got let go on the 27th of March, uh, both of my rejection letters from Centrelink and my lease agreement and an email from my uh, property manager saying what date I had to be out. So I right. could have thought that was enough, but... <laughs> yeah, gosh. Yeah. Um, so this has been uh, quite difficult, I, I, obviously, for you and your family. How have you actually personally been handling this process in your family i mean not very well it's been just such a kick in the teeth because they promised us so much and they said they were going to take care of us and it seems that they are taking care of only a small margin of people and you have to fit like this cookie cutter shape in order to get any help and if you don't then too bad so it's just been like i just feel failed and i know it's not something personal but that really is how it feels Mm. And like, especially given that obviously last week on Tuesday, there was the breakfast where Mark McGowan was the keynote speaker and um, the Kerry Stokes. Kerry Stokes was a guest that was allowed to go without quarantining. Yeah. Returned from New South Wales less than two weeks before and went to a breakfast with 900 people. And Mm. so like they're making exceptions for people that don't need it. Like it's just doesn't seem fair. Mm. 
So it's just constant. I just have no faith anymore in any of them, to be honest, which sounds terrible, but. In a way, the, um, the case, the court case that Clive Palmer's taking, you'd kind of yeah. be hoping that he's successful so that, so that he gets rid of this completely and, and, um, yeah. Yeah. In all honesty, I, I don't hope that it's successful because I I don't think that he should have any say in what's happening with the WA borders. And I'm obviously part of the WA community and I want to protect my own as well. And so as much as it would help my situation, I think it'd be putting too many other people at risk and I don't, I'm not going to bank on that or hope for it. Uh, but it's the, the application of the of the exceptions and 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 how the WA government itself, I guess, is is handling that process that you felt really let, let down by. Yeah, well, it was just it was it was more the fact that there wasn't really any explanation and there wasn't any "I'm sorry" and we understand what you're going through, which obviously I know they don't anyway. But it was just like my application just said rejected next to it, like rejected from my home state. I'm going to be homeless, like. I'm part of the WA community and I know they're trying to protect them, but what's being done to protect me? Mm. You must, it must also feel so strange to find yourself rolled up into this kind of political uh, situational storm that you would have been so hard to have predicted, you know, we, um, yeah. as, as you said, an, a citizen of WA trying to come home and suddenly that's fallen through. That must be a real shock. Yeah, and it seems now I feel like a bit of an outsider from WA as well because people are like, well, you should have come home earlier or you knew this was going to happen, like you've put yourself in this position. So it's obviously been a kick in the teeth to see like no support really coming from the WA community either. Mm. Who knows what's going to happen? Yeah. It could happen tomorrow. Exactly. <laughs> I'm in limbo at the moment, but obviously as of 6pm tonight, our stage four has been put into place so happy stage four amber yeah, yeah. <laughs> welcome to our first stage <laughs> well um amber thank you for giving us your time tonight and yeah. i think all of us hope that the government have a change of heart for your particular circumstances at least and please by all means keep us updated so we can follow what happens yes will do thanks for having me and that was amber khan a Melbourne uh, student who is from Western Australia and has been struggling to get access back to their home state with the current border restrictions. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. Now we're joined by Professor uh, Kim Rubenstein, who is co-director of the 5050 by 2030 Foundation at the University of Canberra. And she has taught constitutional law for many years to future lawyers. And uh, we're going to be talking with Kim about uh, the ins and outs of the constitutional uh, 
um, law matters in relation to Clive Palmer's case. So welcome, Kim. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for giving us your time. My pleasure. And uh, Gemma's going to take over now and ask you if you give you a bit of background. and. To yeah, us. well, I have the slightly unenviable task of trying to summarise the Constitution, um, not only for a radio show, but in front of a constitutional law expert, which is, <laughs> I'm sure my constitutional law uh, lecturer is um, turning in their grave. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you after. I'll give you a Yeah, break. exactly. This, this will be a good... <laughs> A good summary because we wanted to save Kim's Kim's energy, I guess, for answering the really interesting questions. But because this issue is, you know, is obviously playing out in real time in a pandemic that we're watching, but it is a bit gnarly in the way that it's relying on certain elements of the constitution. And if you're anything like me, which is a lawyer that hasn't touched the constitution since second year law, um, I think it's helpful just to kind of go over what are the what are the parts of it that are being called into question by this litigation that, that Palmer has brought, but that irrespective of the facts that are specific to his application, it could be relevant for a number of other states or other people who might bring similar actions. And here's my two-minute rundown of extremely complex constitutional law. Not a problem. <clears throat> okay. The Australian Constitution was kind of brought into place really around the time that Australia uh, was federated. And that's really important because it was the first time in law that really required the states uh, to allow for free trade and commerce and intercourse between them. Now, that's, that, that, that provision is enshrined by Section 92, and that's really the section that Clive Palmer uh, has honed in on in his application to the High Court of Australia against the Western Australian government's decision to close their borders hard. Uh, the other section of the Australian Constitution that, that's relevant um, in some instances, but not specifically for this WA um, one, is Section 117, which also requires that uh, states can't discriminate uh, between any other person from another state. So, for example, states that are discriminating technically are Queensland or South Australia because they're allowing their own residents to return to their states, uh, but uh, not anybody else. Interestingly, WA has put a hard border down, as we've just heard from Amber, which means that even its own residents need to make an application uh, for an exception to get back home. So the Section 92 section of the Constitution is really what Clive Palmer is taking to court in the High Court of Australia. To give a very brief rundown of the procedural history there, uh, he essentially sued the WA government for preventing him from being able to exercise his trade or commerce. So that's basically being able to operate the mines with the freedom in which he wants, which is probably to allow fly-in, fly-out workers to go in and out of WA. Um, and has brought that application and other states have now got involved because obviously other states have similar interests to WA, most um, pressingly Queensland uh, at the moment, who are also considering border closures in a slightly different manner. The High Court Justice Kiefel um, referred uh, the case or remitted the case rather back down to the Federal Court for, uh, to consider some specific facts 
uh, because of course the High Court can't hear factual evidence. So the High Court, the Federal Court rather, sorry, has been considering epidemiological evidence that have been put forward by the various states as to why border closures are so crucial to their um, ability to contain the spread of the coronavirus. So once that uh, decision is, is, is given by the Federal Court, it'll go back up to the High Court for them to consider whether Section 92 has been breached uh, by the WA government. In considering um, that question, the High Court will turn to what's really now termed a four-step a four step test because even though obviously they, 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 they're lawfully not able to stop trade or commerce pursuant to the Constitution, there are obviously, there's been long accepted that courts um, uh, will provide valid exceptions. And that includes, I guess, whether it's for a proper purpose, is the law that the state has passed for a proper purpose? Does it suit the need of that purpose? Is it necessary? Could that same law have been achieved by another uh, by another alternative? And have they really balanced the the adequacy of that of that consideration against other considerations? So that's the test that the High Court will likely apply. And interestingly, it's the same test that is applied in uh, the implied freedom of political communication that Australia has as well. Fantastic. So. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, Kim, um, was that okay and have that I was. led our audience? <laughs> yes, no, it was terrific, top of the class. Um, I want to amplify just a couple of the points because I think that right. they're really interesting from a, I guess, from a sense of thinking of Australia as a nation and thinking of it being a federal system, which is exactly what you, you know, set out at the beginning. Because what is fascinating, and, and this is relevant to a lot of my research, if you go back to the framing of the Constitution, and that framing was done by a lot of white male men from the colonies, um, the motivations for federation were not about um, necessarily a strong sense of identity as, as Australians compared to the British, which is an ongoing issue that the Republican issue is um, still... Um, in the back of our minds, but really one of an efficiency of, of policy objectives as a nation. And some of those, um, which I've written a lot more on than on, on this section, but relate to it, was um, about immigration policy. So the idea that if each of the different states had different rules about um, non-white Australians coming in, it was very difficult to then um, uh, restrict that um, because once someone was in the country, they could move anywhere else in the country. So if you wanted to be discriminatory in one place, you know, it, it was impossible by virtue of uh, Australia's landmass. And so that's another very interesting citizenship question, which maybe we'll have another program about. But you know, in terms of the economics of the nation, they were seeing as colonies the protectionism of doing things that protect the one state of the, or the other was undermining of the nation as a whole. So Section 92 was a really key question of being recognising that it was in everyone's interest if there was a, a, a uniform economic system or a centralised economic system, but acknowledging that each of the different states might have different needs at different times. So this is really the balancing act that we're seeing at play here, which is that you want states to be able to be cognizant of things that are specific or relevant to the states as states geographically in terms of things that are policy needs that are linked specific to the states, as opposed to doing things that are just going to make your state economically better off. So protection, the whole idea of protectionism is to, you know, assist those people within your state to do better economically, often at the 
disadvantage of those outside. And so, you know, the framers were quite, quite clear that they were not wanting protectionism. And that's really what ultimately is going on here in terms of the, these four-part tests is saying, well, is there some sort of legitimate policy end that is, that is, you know, being claimed by the state? And if that is the case and how they, and, and if they articulate that, then that's for the state to decide because as a, as a representative democracy, we elect our leaders to determine things that are in the policy interests. But then it's for a court to say, but is that proportionate? Is, is the measure you're taking for that public policy end proportionate? Or is the law that you're making proportionate to that end? And if there is any sniff of protectionism that you're really only using that as a guise to better protect the economics of your residents, then that's unconstitutional. And that's where there's the link to Section 117, which is if you're doing something that's really about improving the lot of your residents at the disadvantage of those other Australians outside of your area, that's also not going to be allowed. That's unconstitutional. <coughs> so the theme is really interesting mm. at this time when we are, interestingly, and I won't get in, go into more because I'm sure you've got more questions, but where we are seeing differences in the different regions. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's, that's probably a point um, that becomes really um, stark here that here I am sitting in Canberra being able to travel much more freely than you guys in Mel in Melbourne but that's not because of a different public policy objective of Canberra that's because that the statistics on the ground are clearly different and if they were to change of course the ACT government would have to work out what it would want to do but yeah I think I'm probably speaking in too much what other questions you might want to ask me <laughs> no not at all it's it's Thanks. It's uh, fascinating to hear that. And I think um, it's interesting to sort of hear you reflect on how the, the economics were really the, 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 the driving force behind that, that section. And yeah. I can't imagine that there has been another occasion where a giant public health imperative has really drawn con um, consideration under this section. I mean, obviously, economics are certainly part of a state's interest, you know, because we can see the Victoria's been drawn into a much deeper recession because of it. Yes. Um, but do you think the public health uh, aspect of this makes this a particularly interesting issue that the court will grapple with? I think so. I think it's, it is really interesting. I mean, I think of the, um, the, the I mean, I, I studied the, this myself as a student in the 1980s, so I remember Colin Whitfield, and then there was the other case um, of, of Castlemaine and Tui's, which was about recycling and environmental protection in terms of the of the refunds on bottles for beer you know so there was that um environmental climate uh, you know objective which states are entitled to to do again if it was proportionate in, but but when you think of public when you think of public health and um and in terms of freedom of movement actually being quite central to protecting against the spread of a disease you would think in this, I mean, I'm talking as a lay, lay person here as well in terms of not being an epidemiologist and not having that, but that sort of material you will think you would think would be entirely relevant for the court in saying, well, the freedom of, of, of movement is something that will have an impact. And we can see, I mean, we, we can see that in terms of um, you, uh, in Melbourne going into curfew mode because of the fact that if you are out and about, you are more likely to be um, a burden on public health because of transmission through movement. Mm. So, 
you know, my gut sense is that it's a very high bar that Clive Palmer is going to have to pass to prove that this is, I mean, essentially has to show that it's protectionist, that it's that what it's doing is actually protecting economically the state as opposed to an, a, a legitimate public end, which is the the lives of the people who are within that um, that geographic region and so yes I think that that whole process of it going back to the federal court to agreed statements of of what the position is is essential for the court to then grapple with that sort of balancing act. Kim I find it interesting we're talking about the history of this type of litigation being framed economically and we're talking about the lead plaintiff here being a very unpopular figure in Australia, being Clive Palmer, how might it be framed this kind of action when it's not really concerning economic policy as much as the freedom of movement of people and their well-being if perhaps, say, another person is impacted in a, in a well-being way and becomes yeah. a burden on public health in other ways? Uh, yeah. is, is it something that maybe this, this case is not focused on because of the, the publicity that Clive Palmer brings to it? Yes, that's a really interesting question. So you're saying because Clive Palmer's motivation is economic and the framing of that section is economic, so that all sort of fits. But the other claimant is someone who is affected by the other um, public policy issues that flow from closing borders in terms of um, connection to family, connection to their own physical well-being by virtue of being out of their home state. And I reckon the Section 117 example is more relevant there because if that if my understanding is right that someone who is normally a resident of that state who is being prevented from coming back in in a way they're being discriminated against and being or, or that their their connection to the state is not being taken into account in a way that undermines their own physical well-being and um it would be interesting to see because again that whether that is disproportionate to the public policy and because you're right, the, the public policy end is the physical well-being of the, of the people in that territory. How far does that um, go? Because if, if that person's family are there and their physical well-being is undermined by virtue of the stress and concern for their child who is out of the territory, then that seems to that you know so then that's but then the difficulty there is it's a seeking to sort of ask the high court to look into the the policy itself underpinning that social objective and that's really not the role of the court that's for us as democratic citizens to say we don't like that we're going to vote you out at the next election because you did something that we don't think is is um good policy Mm. as opposed to it being unconstitutional and that constitutional frame as you've just heard is really more in terms of its protectionist objective as opposed to its health and well-being objective. So having helped, having asked that question and helped me to articulate that, I think um, it does highlight the sort of the nature of our constitutional democratic system, that there are some things that governments can only be accountable for in the ballot box as opposed to the courts interfering and, you know, public outrage at something like that might be politically more influential than going to the court over it. We'd need to also um, have a look at the regulations because if there is some frame of what's called merits review as opposed to judicial review so that 
Um, if the state has set up a, a body like an administrative appeals tribunal to review those sorts of decisions, because they're ultimately administrative law decisions under the legislation, there might be recourse for a different decision maker to say, no, in these circumstances, that member of the family should be able to return if there is discre any discretion. This is when, if, if the regulations set up some sort of discretion for the decision maker, then there might be a window of an opportunity for that individual to seek a merits review of that discretion. But if the legislation's clear and there is nothing unconstitutional about it, then uh, and there's no merits review framework, then ultimately it becomes a political decision that you would hope that other forces might have some sort of influence. So what you're saying, I guess, is, is that sometimes the best recourse is not the court, it's exactly yes. what our our next guest is has done which is go to the media and make it public and yes. and really affect the you know make make the politicians a bit nervous yes get them to listen to be responsive to their the people who are electing them mm. it's tricky because um you know, obviously the, the, the court can't, can't I guess, um, venture into what might be just simply a bad policy decision of, of yes. the executive. Um, but the, the, the consideration of the, of the epidemiology as evidence yes. um, is inherently a value judgment that those governments are making. And what's difficult, I think, is that, you know, the McCloy test um, that would be applied as proportionality, this balancing, yeah. it's hard to conceive of how the court will go about that exercise when the evidence, I'm obviously not privy to what was, uh, what was put before the court this last week, but my understanding of the epidemiology of this is just no holds back. Like, if there's any, anything that you can do to contain this, you must take that action. Mm -hmm. um, so how the court's going to evaluate that balance when the evidence is i think so clear as to say to say if you've got any option you must pursue that it will be really difficult i think i think i mean i agree with you and i think that that tends to make one think that the courts are less likely to interfere in that scenario because unless there is clear protectionist um, outcomes that are disproportionate you know that proportionality then the courts, as, as we know, are not um, experts. So they, and if the expert opinion is open and it's not unreasonable for the government to rely on an opinion which is the most protective of the health and well-being of their citizens as opposed to improving their own economic lot, you know, it's not a protectionist objective, it's a life, you know, a health and well-being objective, then, yes, I, I mean, we... As like you, I haven't seen any of the evidence, so you'd have to really look at that. But on that broader conceptual level, I would think it would be difficult for an applicant to be successful. Mm. It's interesting too to think about, um, you know, how different the world is now than when federation happened. You know, the digital yeah. age has meant that we all, you know, there's so much more work that can be done um, Yes, from online. one side of the country to the other um, using the digital world. Yeah. So there's much less of a limitation on that sort of yes. goods and services um, exchange um, than there was in those days. Yes, indeed. And I, one of the things that I heard this morning, you know, we're, we're talking about Victoria and um, its economy, but yeah. as 
that, as I heard, I think one comment that Victoria's economy, excuse the background noise that I've noticed. That your son revving the mobile <laughs> back. <laughs> Piano <laughs> practice is over. <laughs> but what I was going to say is um, there was a reference, of course, to Victoria's economy has an impact on the national economy. So none of this really is protectionist because we are so interconnected now, which was the whole purpose of Section 92, of that freedom of interstate trade to be able to um, benefit from one another. So in that sense, the you know, that that it, it, you, you just feel that it would be too hard to show that it's protectionist because we're also reliant on each, on each other in that federal system, mm. which in some ways also takes me um, back to that framing and historical material, which is really interesting because one of the pieces that I've written um, is around questions to do with feminism and federalism. And one of the ideas that I've um, sort of, um, developed is that in a federal system what you're looking at is a pluralistic system of recognizing that there may be different needs in different and this is in the context of your different geographic regions which is exactly what is going on at the moment there are different needs in a locational physical sense but sometimes there are other policies that are not specific to the different you know states that there are different measures that affect different groups and you know gender is one aspect and and particular issues to do um you know with um uh, families or um, uh, to do with individual health and well-being that are more biologically based. It doesn't matter where you live in the country if you want IVF treatment, for instance. Um, those sorts of policies really don't are not different because you live in one state or another. It's because of your different life experience. Yet the different states have different controls over the, that legislation. And so the question is, if you're trying to promote a particular policy that is for a particular group wherever they live is a centralized system better for affecting that policy as opposed to enabling states to have control um, and it's a really sort of interesting question because ultimately um, if one thinks strategically about the policy objectives if you have a centralized government that is doing what i might call more progressive policy in relation to some of those issues then it's much better if that central body is supporting and let's say women in that context throughout the country but what if they're not doing things that are positive or progressive then a federal system can be helpful because different states can actually experiment and do things better as a way of promoting a better policy outcome so federalism can be good as a sort of a laboratory for more progressive policy if your centralized government isn't necessarily um, fulfilling those sort of policy objectives. So it's sort of an interesting question about structure of government um, and the way government operates and its impact on individuals wherever they live around that, that geographic region. Mm. Um, and here, I mean, in this, it, it, this is an interesting scenario, I think, because as we all say, as we often say, COVID itself doesn't discriminate. Mm. That, but, but, its impact on individuals is differentiated depending on what your life experience and background is. So the actual, you know, germ doesn't discriminate, but its impact is differential. Mm. So that as we've seen in most recent material, um, women have had greater job losses by virtue of the gendered nature of the workforce 
um, women who are responsible for child, you know, ha have a disproportionate load for childcare, that also has, you know, had a, you know, has had been significant. Um, so there are all these different ways in which, as a nation, there are similarities by virtue of your different life experience, but you know, the actual impact of the of of COVID, as we can see in what we're talking about right now, is um, affecting different regions differently. And mm. so in that context, to get back to where we where we started, to me it does seem legitimate that each state has to do what is in the best interests of the area in which it is legislatively responsible to make sure that the health and well-being of its membership or its state citizenry um, is protected from getting sick. I guess we're almost seeing um, that play out um, in the with a different, you know, a different attribute in relation to age in Victoria as well, where, um, you know, our aged care sector um, has been, you know, decimated and, and is going to have some terrible numbers come up in Victoria. Um, and, of course, they're Victorian-specific patients, but they're covered by the federal government. So um, there's been a lot of um, hot potato passing as to whose responsibility that is. Yes. Um, and so that's, a, I guess, another example of how disproportionately the yes. germ um, discriminates against specific people who have yeah. different protections that are offered by a completely different political system. Yeah. And it, I think it does, it does show um, how a federal system um, complicates the mm. way in which regulation occurs um, and that there can be, um, that you need a sort of, there needs to be some sort of safety net to protect against things that get lost in the system um, and perhaps, you know, some further review in terms of, um, you know, the ways in which um, each of the different state governments and, and, and the federal government um, ensure that those um, safety nets are always in place and so that these things don't happen. But that's always easier said in hindsight. I must say, just and to add on to here, that um, that uh, on that aged healthcare um, area, I've um, also done a lot of work of oral history with women lawyers as trailblazing women lawyers. And one of the people who I um, interviewed and perhaps I'll get her permission before. If, did you have a, is there a website where we can put a link later for people to come back and have oh, a look? Absolutely. So because I haven't given, checked her permission, but this is, comes, she did a lot of work in that area of um, aged care as a, as a federal lawyer. And I might check with her if we can put a link to her oral history um, and um, something that she wrote about that experience of really having herself gone back as a law student as an um, as a mature age student but had done during her years as a sort of second job work in the aged care industry and was really committed to improving it and was mm. quite key in um, the policy development of what she felt at the time was a much improved system. Now that's already 20 years ago and it would be interesting to speak to her about what her views are of what's happening now. Absolutely, um, but, but we'll put if we can. I'll get. I'll see if she's happy for us to put a link to her um, story up with your. Um, that would be great. Segment. Yeah, that would be great. Is there any last questions? Um, if there isn't, I'd um, like to get your thoughts, Kim, on the Commonwealth now withdrawing as a party from this case. Whether that has any influence, you might think, or is that unusual in this kind of case? 
uh, where it's a key constitutional issue being considered? Yes, look, I do think it is significant. Um, I guess for the Commonwealth, um, when it, it, in a way, it would appear on um, in a case like this in order to assist the court in terms of the interpretation of the section. Um, and um, the Attorney General himself, you know, was on the record of saying it would be unusual for the Commonwealth not to be a party. So it will be interesting to see what they actually say in relation to any follow-up uh, questioning about it. Um, you, I mean, each of the parties would have responsibilities to make sure and the court will ask questions to make sure all the relevant materials before it. So it doesn't necessarily diminish the breadth of the argumentation um, that will go before the court and it will be perhaps interesting to see if if the Commonwealth is called by the court itself. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure um, what the procedural capacity is, but I don't know if you remember in the... Indigenous citizenship case, Love and Tom's oh. and the Commonwealth just um, a few months ago, the parties were brought back and asked questions that they hadn't raised in the hearing. And so it will be interesting to follow the way in which this case is run and whether the High Court does reach out to seek any further information from the Commonwealth mm, in, relation to, in, in relation to the case. So I think this is a, this is, it's a really good question and it's one to watch this space as to how the High Court manages the argument. It's a great topic. Um, this was Sue's idea of a topic, by the way. <laughs> so we all thanks go to Sue. Just as one sneaky follow-up question, um, listening uh, or reading the room perhaps in the last few days, um, I wonder whether the Commonwealth has decided to withdraw from the case because the situation in Victoria has become so startling. And I wonder if it's a timing question of maybe when Palmer made the application three weeks ago, it seemed like, and obviously it's in the Commonwealth's interests perhaps to be able to promote the idea of that nationhood. Yes. Um, but maybe in the intervening time, that that shift has happened where Victoria is now the, you know, very much on the nose to every other state in, in Australia. But it also highlights to me one of the problems I would have thought that the court is going to grapple with here is that the time can change so rapidly. So they might be making a decision which is in many ways irrelevant. If, 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 the, if the virus gets away in WA in intervening two or three weeks, what meaningful difference can the court say? Because the, the, the consideration they would have given to the epidemiology is, might not hold up anymore. Yes, yes. And, I mean, if things are good in WA and things are not good in other states, then there does seem a common sense notion, doesn't there, that you want to protect things from becoming bad in, the, in WA, which will only undermine the entire economy as a whole, like if, if, if it happens in more and more places, that's just going to be more undermining of the nation as a whole so that if you can keep it out of different areas of Australia in a way that is consistent with the health objectives, then that would on its face appear to be constitutional. But back, back to the Commonwealth's position there, well, that's right, that, that there is a, it is in the interest of the nation for the, for the disease to be contained wherever it is. Kim, I'm minded to uh, Colin Whitfield and the hearing um, where that case that considered Section 92 was about crayfish rules and different <laughs> size limits for crayfish That's where funny. one of the, the lawyers in that case brought a crayfish to the hearing um, <laughs> at the bar table. That was like that was 
part of something, you know, because it was a determinant of fact in that case. Indeed. I don't think any of the lawyers are going to be bringing COVID-19. No. <laughs> and that makes me think of the Prime Minister bringing coal into yeah. <laughs> So I don't think we'll see any antics on this level. I think we're at the stage... Um, where it's there is no there's no real laughing matter here is there it's so dire you just hope that you know the decision makers in every context whether it be our politicians or our our judges are able to just you know take a deep sigh and think thought you know uh, to really bring wisdom to play to the extent that they can in um assessing in, in assessing what is in the overall objectives and that is you know consistent obviously in a constitutional sense with section 92 thank you very much for your time kim and uh we really appreciate your expertise and your wonderful uh thoughts about about this and it'll be so interesting we're all law nerds here and we just want to we can't wait to see what happens really yes. well, watch this space. case watch this space and communicate with each other afterwards to say ah yes we were spot on <laughs> or no we weren't <laughs> thank you so much i've really enjoyed spending the time with you all and that's it uh for this evening that's all we've got um you've been listening to sue dan and Gemma on 3cr 855 am that's done by law for this week tune in next tuesday at 6 p.m thanks so much you've been listening to a 3cr podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3cr in melbourne australia for more information go to allthews.3cr.org.au